Today's teaching text comes from Isaiah 42, 1-9, and Isaiah 53. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Isaiah 53 Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, 
and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, as we begin this second week of Advent, uh, we have lit the candle of peace, which kind of puts us in an interesting place uh, because we said last week, you know, Fleming Rutledge uh, helped us arrive at the, at the sort of title for this series, The Time Between, and, and we're stuck there a little bit in Advent. We're, we're, we're lighting the candle of peace, we're longing for, we're believing for peace, but we know we're not fully experiencing peace. And so what do we do uh, about, about that? We haven't lit this candle of peace um, to signify that all is well with the world. Um, Whatever else we might be accused of as, as the church, as followers of Jesus, uh, may it not be that we have just like lit our candles and, and sang our carols and ignored the reality of the world. And for most of us, that's not too much of a challenge because the reality of the world is crashing in on our actual lives and we're wrestling for, for peace as much as, much as anyone a few years back, I read a book called Unapologetic uh, by Francis Spufford, and, and, and what he says about peace in the opening of the book has, has stayed with me. Uh, he says, peace is not the state of being we return to like water running downhill where, whenever there's nothing external to perturb us. Peace between people is an achievement, a state of affairs we put together effortfully in the face of competing interests and primate dominance and our evolved tendency to cease our sympathies at the boundaries of our tribe. Peace within is made difficult, to say the least, uh, by the way we tend to have actual emotional life going on. Peace is not the norm. Peace is rare. And where we do manage to institutionalize it in a human society, it's because we have, given, uh, been, we, we have been intelligently pessimistic about human proclivities and found a way to work with the grain of them in a system of intense mutual suspicion, like the U.S. Constitution, a document which assumes that absolutely everybody will be corrupt and power-hungry given half a chance. As for the inner version, I'm not at peace all that often. I doubt you are either. Is Francis being too pessimistic there? Maybe some of you are actually like, no, I actually feel fine today, or I actually feel fine most of the time. And, and this is not uh, meant to be a diagnosis that's going to drag us down. But um, the reality is, uh, you know, when we look at all, all that this year has brought us and, um, you know, 
with with the pandemic and and racial injustice in our country and the reckoning that has come from that and and the election and all the tension and polarization and partisanship and and we have job and economic insecurity and many of us are experiencing increased isolation and and others of us are experiencing um, the increased uh, uh, an increased togetherness but with intense stress you know stressors in the middle now we're facing um, this winter spike in COVID and so. I think Francis's words uh, resonate with us that peace is a challenge. Peace is not just, uh, as he says, the the state of being we return to like water running downhill. Um, uh, and, and 2020 has, uh, by all indicators, only exacerbated the challenge to peace. It's only um, heightened the volume at times on our anxieties, the challenges to our peace. So is this candle of peace just a pipe dream? Is it just sort of like a Christmas smile that we plaster on and, and that we charge forward and we sing our carols and we act like everything's okay when we really know it isn't? And before we leap to an answer to that question, I want us to walk uh, the two ancient paths that we just heard read in our teaching text. And I want to see if we can walk them together without knowing exactly where they're going to end up, even though on one level we do know where they're going to end up. So we read this morning from two sections of a long poem. Uh, It's one long poem that stretches in the writings of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 40 to 55. So this is an epic poem. Uh, I heard N.T. Wright say this week, if this was discovered today by an archeologist in a dig, this would immediately you know, be, be a noteworthy, uh, significant discovery. The poem, its reach, its passion, its, its, uh, its language, its imagery is, is powerful. On its own, it stands as a tremendous sort of work of, of literature. Um, But we also have to see it in the context of what's going on in the whole prophecy of Isaiah. And then I think in the whole course of redemptive history and what's going on in the scriptures. So we read from, remember, Isaiah 40 to 55 is one long poem. And we read from an early section of the poem in Isaiah 42. And then we read from a later section near, near the end uh, in Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous sections of the Old Testament, of the, uh, certainly of, of Isaiah's prophecy for Christians, because... Um, you know, many of us are so fairly certain that when we when we read that passage, we're seeing Jesus, and I, I don't think that's wrong. But I want to challenge us this morning to to let the picture develop a little more slowly than perhaps we normally normally do. And I'll say that's a challenge for me. Like if you're if you're a bit like me, um, when you think of what 2020 has represented, you want to jump ahead to 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 a, to a, a better time, right? These these you know I'm hearing these winter months might be our most difficult yet, and and I'm like, well, we should have a vaccine soon, and that's going to be right on the horizon, and I'm, I, I want to leap forward. Oh, we need to take extra precautions in this time to love our neighbors well, and I'm like, yeah, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and maybe we're going to meet you know meet in person uh, sometime next year, and when's that going to happen and uh, maybe we're we're nearing the end. I was just saying to a friend yesterday, uh, I, I'm hoping we're nearing the end of this like hyper divided partisan political moment that we're in. And, and he didn't skip a beat. And he was like, do you know Trump's going to declare his candidacy for next time on inauguration day? And I was like, ah, and that wasn't like a, even a, a, a political or a partisan moment. It's just like an exhaustion with the rhetoric, an exhaustion with, 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 with the, the tension. It's like, I need, I need a release. And so we look at these, these, these 
sections of this poem in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. And, and many of us right away were like, ah, see, Jesus, there he is. It couldn't be clear. But I think we are actually missing something if we don't let ourselves go through the process, if we don't let ourselves walk the journey the prophet is inviting us on. And actually to remember that uh, we're still centuries away from the, from the birth of Jesus when these prophecies are given. For the, for, for the first hearers of this text, and I believe even for the first um, for the author of this poem, for Isaiah, um, they, they would not have clearly or as certainly as we do had Jesus in mind. It wasn't like Isaiah was transported. Uh, you know, We don't actually know the exact mechanics, but it's, it's more than likely that he wasn't just transported to a time where he's seeing like on a video screen in his mind, Jesus walking around the Galilean countryside and performing miracles and dying on the cross. He's, he's putting these pieces together like poetic imagery and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's developing. So let's see um, if we can see these poems through, through an Advent lens of longing, of expectation. Um, there's, there's a lot of debate. Uh, I kind of lost myself in it this week a little. There's a lot of debate about how to break up the book of Isaiah, how to understand it. But there is no debate that there's actually multiple pictures coming through in this big prophetic work. Um, there, there's, there's different emphasis, there's different tone, uh, but there's also uh, different, different pictures of what God's uh, intervention in the world is going to look like. And the political situation and the, and the condition of Israel is changing throughout the 66 um, chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. And, and there's a, a messianic picture that does come through, this expectation that Israel is going to... to um, return to her vocation, return to her calling of covenant that God gave all the way back in the beginning and all the promises are, are, are going to be fulfilled, but they're going to be fulfilled as, as Israel moves into this messianic expectation that someone's going to come out of Israel. So we have this picture in uh, Isaiah 1 through 39 of this king this messianic picture of a king. And then we have a picture in 40 to 55, which is the, the servant. And um, we'll say more about that in just a minute because that's where we are this morning. But we have the king, the servant, and then the anointed conqueror. So 1 through 39 is the king, 40 to 55 is the servant, and 55 to 66 is the anointed conqueror. And in and, and the section that we're in, the servant, we have actually these four famous servant songs. The first one is in Isaiah 42. We have another in Isaiah 49, another in Isaiah 50, and then there's one long one in 52 to 53 that we ended in. And these songs are written to a people who are in exile. That's really important. We're going we're gonna to return to that in, 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 just, in just a minute. But the reality is it's almost like you're shaking a Polaroid picture. And in the beginning, you can see the sort of fuzzy outlines of, of whoever this messianic person is. And, and it's like, is this Jacob? Is this Israel? Yes. Um, is this also someone specific within Israel? Yes. Oh, is this something that's also going to include the world? And It's like the more you shake the picture, the more comes through these servant songs in Isaiah. But, but I said it's really important to remember these, this poetry is written to a people who are in exile. Like the bad news has happened to them. Last week we talked about the bad news in a sense that the world is, is reckoning with and wrestling with. And it comes to us in Genesis 3. How did things become so broken? Whatever your worldview is, whatever your philosophy is, right? If you're paying attention to the world, you have to ask the question, why are things like this? Why are we regularly returning to, to wars and rumors of wars? Why are we regularly dealing with this, this sort of like generational selfishness? And why do things slide? Why, like, why is that true? 
Francis Buffett said that peace is not the norm, that we're always sliding back into these other states of being. Genesis 3 was, was an attempt, and I encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and, and, and listen to that because it's setting this sort of scene for all of these Advent uh, reflections that we're doing. But how did things become so broken? And, and when we get to Isaiah 42, the, the, the beginning of the, the section of the poem that we read today, the consequence of that brokenness are not contained to a garden or just in the aftermath of it. It is ravaging and raging across the world. That right, The wars and rumors of wars, the violence, the oppression, the brokenness, the divisions, right, all the things that we, the isms that we, re- we wrestle with as a people, they, they're having deep impact on the world. They're having deep impact on, on Israel and the people God has called. Um, to, to join with him, to partner with him, right? Torah is about God inviting human beings, Israel in particular, to partner with him in the repairing of the world. We sometimes talk, if you've been to like an intro to Trinity Grace, about the way we, we look at the, the narrative arc of the scriptures and the five-act drama that's taking place from Genesis to Revelation. And we talk about it in terms like creation, fall, covenant, redemption, renewal. Now, I think that's a really important and helpful tool for understanding like when you're reading a particular part of the Old Testament or the New Testament, where am I in this five-act drama? Where am I in this overarching uh, sort of narrative of, of redemption that's taking place in the scriptures? Is this, is this a moment that's talking about creation? Obviously, the beginning is like that, but it's referenced all throughout. Is this a moment that's referencing and talking about the fall and how the world became broken, how God's beginning to repair the world through covenant, what that looks like in fulfillment, in redemption, in the person of Jesus and what that uh, ministry and life and salvation of Jesus is meant to overflow into into renewal of the world and, and hope and expectation for the age to come. So for just a second, when we talk about covenant, right? And so it's like creation, creation, fall, covenant, redemption, renewal. Covenant takes a massive amount of the scriptures. So we're talking about, we're talking about Abraham, the call to leave his people, to leave what he's familiar with and to go to a new land, to become a new people. Then his son Isaac and then Jacob and the establishment of this nation of Israel. And so like when you get to Isaiah and you hear a he, right? One of the things that the the Jewish people are so adept at doing, something that we with our Greek linear mindset and sort of rationale have a challenge sometimes at, is actually they entered the story. They weren't just reading at a distance and saying, oh, look, this piece and this piece go together. Isn't that interesting? They're saying, no, this is our story and we're immersed in it. And so when you hear uh, Jacob or Israel addressed in the scriptures, it's the established uh, men of this nation and the covenant God made with Jacob to, to continue in this repair of the world. Then we have Moses, right? The covenant with Moses, the Exodus, the, the lead, this massive picture of, of God bringing his people to salvation and then giving them freedom, but then also giving them his law, giving them a constitution for how to live, not as a people of slavery in the world, but as a people of freedom, a people of covenant, the people of Yahweh, repairing and healing the world. And then we actually have this cycle of judges where Israel constantly is losing its vocation. It's fumbling in its true identity. It's worshiping other gods. It's getting caught up in the surrounding culture. And, and there, there's this cycle of rebellion and repentance that we see in the judges. And then finally they're like, we want to be like the rest of the nations. Give us a king. And we have the section of, of the kings in the, in the Old Testament. And we have this sort of like two pictures of the first two, Saul and David. And they're like uh, archetypes almost. I mean, they're, 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 they're in their own right. They, they live you know these vibrant detailed lives but they also show us like what the kings are going to be like some who are going to go their own way uh, only a few who are going to hang on to the covenant to the call of Yahweh so we have these kings who, who, are, who are leading uh, Israel and then ultimately with David's son Solomon we have this kingdom split 
And for the rest of the, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, it's a calling of God through the prophets for Israel to come back to her true, vaca- true vocation, her true calling, her true identity as a covenant people to help repair, restore, uh, renew, bless the entire world as, as, the, as the covenant promise to Abraham was made way back. So when you read the prophets, and I know this might be more information than you need, to, but I want, I want it to situate us so we're ready to hear this poem, is we have prophets who before the exile are saying, listen, listen, you've got to come back to your heart. You've forgotten the poor. You've forgotten your, your devotion to Yahweh. You're getting so caught up in other gods and you're getting so caught up in the systems of this world. And they're saying, if you don't, there's gonna, you're going to break the kingdom apart. You're going to be drawn away into exile. There's all these warnings. And then there's the exilic prophets. Once the hammer has fallen, once they're dragged away into exile, the prophets are calling them back. And then there's the post-exilic. And then there's a waiting period. And then only 400 years later, the Gospels begin. And so, so like, there's a quick flash from Abraham to the end of the Old Testament for you. But when you get to this part of Isaiah, 40 to 55 and 42 and 53, the specific sections we read this morning, this is exilic uh, poetry. This is exilic prophecy. This is uh, the, hor- the horrific thing that the prophets have warned about has happened. I don't know exactly what, what year, if, if you want to go down a deep rabbit hole, try to identify the specific time that this section of Isaiah was written, and there is a lot written about that. But uh, I imagine people talked about it like we talk about 2020. Can you believe this year? Can you believe this season? Can you believe all that's happened? We've been dragged away into exile. First, the northern king, kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And then everybody was conquered by Babylon. And then Babylon took the best of the culture, the best, uh, whatever they thought was of value, and drug it away to their cities and left uh, just devastation in their wake. And that devastation has fallen. And so all through 1 through 39 in Isaiah, it's a, it's a warning. This is coming. You've got to turn back. Right? We, we need the true king on the throne. And then when you get to Isaiah 40, the tone shifts. There's a change, and all of a sudden the words become words of comfort. Isaiah 40, it's basically like it's not always going to be like this. Light a candle of peace, because it's not always going to be like this. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now this is prophetic. This is exilic poetry. They are in the middle of the exile. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So then uh, this goes on, right? The poem begins to get developed even more. By Isaiah uh, 41, we get at the heart of the trouble. Basically, God's saying, my people have rejected me and rejected their, my way in the world. They, ha- they have gradually accepted these other gods. They have, ha- have gradually accepted another vocation, another way of being, another way of living in the world. They've abandoned their covenantal calling, this covenantal task. It's actually the same trouble that we saw in Genesis 3, just depicted 
in another way. And so God proposes a showdown. And this happens over and over again, right? When, when the, Israel brings the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon, remember that? And the statue the next morning has fallen down and they stand him up again and then the next morning he's fallen down again and his arms have broken off. It's that sort of reality going on. God is saying, let's see who really is God. Let's see who really can speak. Let's see who really can change things. It's similar to the dynamic of the showdown of Elijah and the prophets of Baal that we see taking place on Mount Carmel. Let's see who really is God in this situation. As the picture begins to develop, right, even that God who's who's saying, uh, let's have a showdown, then really unexpectedly doesn't come anymore as this powerful conquering king like the Assyrians had or the Babylonians had. We have this bizarre picture of a servant. Israel's being called back to her covenant vocation, being called back to her identity as a healer, a justice bringer, a repairer in the world. And it is this servant song that begins to make that calling clear. I want you to listen to this again. Just hear this with these eyes. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And you want to hear Jesus. I do too. But also first, this is to Israel. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what the God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out. Creator of the heavens. This is the exact same word, barah, that we heard in Genesis 3. Like the, the breathing out of God's creation. I'm going to keep going. Who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk in it. I, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, will make you, I will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is Israel's vocation. This is what the people of God are called to do. This, this is it, it really important. for. Uh, it raises a question for how we read our Bibles, and it's a really important one. It, it, it's basically, does the Hebrew Scriptures, do the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, does the Old Testament just point to Jesus as coming to perfectly fulfill these prophecies, or is it true but the opposite? Actually, Jesus has come to perfectly live as God promised that Israel was meant to live. And so it's not like Israel's story is just a setup for what's to come. No, Israel's story is a story of how God is going to repair the world through covenant love, through suffering covenant love, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Not like all this was a waste and we're just waiting for this. No, this, this one, Jesus comes and fulfills all that was promised to Israel so that we can go back into that vocation and embody that reality as individuals and as a people united to Christ, united to Israel's Messiah. I think that second sort of understanding is way more accurate. Not that just the Old Testament points to Jesus, but that Jesus points back 
to Israel and her prophets and is fulfillment so that we can enter that fulfillment. So what on earth is this servant going to look like? Whether it's Jesus or the community that Jesus forms one day or Israel's Messiah or Israel, they are delighted in. They hear that church. They are delighted in. They are given the spirit. Um, they are gentle. Where the rest of the world is conquering through violence, this servant is coming in gentleness. This was mind-blowing for those who would one day encounter the mystery of who Jesus was. They're like, you have the power. Look, you're healing people. Look, you're calming the storms. Look, look, look you're, you're doing all these things. Surely you can drive out our enemies. Surely you can overthrow them and establish a, a victorious kingdom for us. But he comes in gentleness. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, delighted in, given the spirit, gentle, but also enduring, also enduring. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. It's the exact same descriptions, right? A bruised reed and a smoldering wick. The, the temptation is to falter and to be discouraged. And he says he will do neither, but he will endure, that he's inclusive, that this is a story for Israel, but it's also a story for the islands. That in effect, the most remote parts of the world, the parts no one's even been to yet, they're going to hear of this majesty. This is what the God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, right? I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hands. I will make you a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. This is a worldwide covenantal project. Is this Israel? Yes. Is this Jesus? Yes, we will come to see that. He's also compassionate, right? Doesn't this sound like the ministry of Jesus? Open the eyes of the blind, free the captors, release the prisoners. This should sound to us like Jesus' ministry. I'll give you that. But it is also Israel's ministry. And guess what? Through Jesus, it becomes our ministry as well. The last thing I'll mention about the servant is, is, is there's, a, there's a prophetic edge to the servant's life. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. That is an Advent passage if there ever was. Before they spring into being, before you see it realized, before we get to the light at the end of the tunnel, let me tell you of peace. You don't need to light a candle of peace if everything's, everything's already lit up. You light the candle of peace in the darkness of tension, in the darkness of violence, in the darkness of racism, in the darkness of, of overwhelming selfishness, even when it's springing out of our own life. That's when we light the candle of peace. And by the time we get to Isaiah 53 and this poem, like we've shaken the Polaroid quite a few times now and the picture's getting clearer and clearer and clearer. We're starting to see that actually the prophecy and the fulfillment are folding in on one another. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Is this Israel? Is this Jesus? Yes. <laughs> He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. On Jacob, yes. On Israel, yes. On Jesus, yes. Yes. 
By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have this incredible benefit, not of knowing exactly fully how the story is going to end, but where at least the prophecy of this poetry is, is, is leading. But Advent is a time to let us be for a moment in the place with those who are longing, with a place for those who are with a place of those who are who are waiting, who are expecting, who are saying, How did the world get so broken? How is God going to repair the world? And then right as we keep that question at an arm's length and we imagine it must be someone somewhere else that's going to come, God's also putting that vocation on us and saying, you know what? I want to share this with you. I want you to participate. I'm going to accomplish it. I'm not going to share my glory with another, as the passage says, but I'm going to invite you in to enjoy this glory with me as I repair and heal the world, as I bring justice So quite unexpectedly, how is the world going to be made right? Is it going to be that one dominant force rises for a few generations to the top and then levels things out as they see fit? Or is it going to be, as this servant song says, that there's going to become one who, who, who lowers themselves, who has the spirit, who is gentle with those who are bruised? who is gentle with those who are at the very end of themselves? This servant will be a covenant. If that sounds familiar to the meal we receive every week, it should. For the broken, for the exhausted, for, 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 for those who have lost all sense of purpose and vocation in the world and feel like they're absolutely wandering, he has come to take the burden on himself. His wounds will become our peace, right? So this is not, this candle of peace doesn't represent a shallow sentimentality. It doesn't represent just like a hallmark version of peace. This is peace that has been wounded. So that all of those who receive the benefit of those wounds can themselves live as agents of suffering love and saying, you know what? Because of my hope last week in Yahweh to repair the world. I, I, I can live with a sense of peace now, even in actual real turmoil. But more than that, I can be a small light of peace in whatever sphere of relationships or circumstances or moods or places or years, 2020, that God has situated in my life. I can be a small candle of peace, joining the small flicker of my life to the flame of the glory of God, the repairer, the covenant bringer, the healer. So as we shake the picture in Isaiah 40 to 55, right, we see that Isaiah is, 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 is bringing forward something. Is, it, it, we've seen this before. Oh, this is Jacob. Oh, that means this is Israel. But we keep sh- shaking and all of a sudden not, now we're seeing Jesus and we're like, oh, this is Jesus. And we, we love that. And sometimes we want to stop there. But we keep sh- shaking and we see this Jesus is joined by an entire community. Yes, Israel's still there, but also the nations, the, the islands, the Gentiles are brought, brought in. And now I'm seeing if I look close enough, right? If you, you know, like they're always doing in the, in the detective movies, like zero in on this. And then they're like all the way down. And suddenly you see your own face in the crowd, your own face there, that you're included in this community of peace that God is bringing into the world. And so, 
I think the words of this ancient prophecy are really relevant to us in 2020, which for me has felt at, at times, you know, different than Israel, of course, but like a year of exile. It's, it's a year of, of being far away from life as I want life to be, from life as I thought maybe even life was promised to be, from, from, from life as I, I would hope or expect it to be. If 2020 has been a year of exile for you, this poetry is for your heart. The promise of this Polaroid that's getting shaken is for your heart. This has also been a year, I, I, quite frankly, of bruised reeds. A, a year where, where some of us have felt so beaten down, so bruised, so injured that it's been difficult to stand. If you have felt that way, I want you to know you are not alone. You are not alone, and this poem is for you. This is centuries before the baby was going to be born, right? The conqueror of Assyria, the conqueror of Babylon, who's possibly going to change this situation (gasps) hundreds of years from now, and then the announcement, and then nine months later, and then who shows up? A baby who can't hold his head up is going to do what? Is going to be a redeemer, a healer, a justice bringer, a righteousness giver like the world has never seen, carrying a gentleness the world has never seen, and a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This has been a year of smoldering wicks. Some of you have felt absolutely exhausted. You're like, if I have a flame at all, it is absolutely going out. That thin trail of smoke is stretching up, and I'm not sure I can make it to to January. This poem is for you. You have a place to go. I want to say, as flickering as it may feel, this piece is not a pipe dream. It is connected to an ancient promise. We have seen these things before. We are not the first to go through a massively difficult time. And of course, we know that intellectually, but what we need to do is feel it in the embrace of our hearts that we are not alone. This has been a year of exile. It has been a year of bruised reeds. It has been a year of smoldering wicks. But I want you to know we are hanging on to the ancient promise. And as we shake the Polaroid, a picture is coming clear of a suffering servant who is so gentle with us, who brings redemption in the most unexpected way and then invites you to be an agent, a participant, have a full share in that exact redemption. So eventually we do get all the way to the Gospels. And Matthew 12 (laughs) takes up these exact words from Isaiah 42 about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And why? Because he has stepped into the tumult of this story and he has become our peace. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is talking about the reunification of our vocation as the people of God in the person of Jesus. He himself is our peace. And we can't help but mention it a little bit even in Advent that he is coming and has come. I I get so much joy from going through the Alpha course uh, a couple times a year. And and I was reminded this this past week of this uh, moment where Corey Ten Boom in the Alpha video says, when you're on a train and the, and the train goes through a dark tunnel, you don't tear up your ticket and jump off the train. You sit still and you trust the driver. 
and you know the weight of her life having been through the concentration camps and all that she had to endure, all the times when, when peace must have just felt like a shallow sentimentality, a small little flame in the darkness, and yet she says, sit still and trust the driver. And I want to add to it because I think this poetry and the calling of Israel and the calling of Jesus is inviting us to add to it, if you can, Add to that, sitting still and trusting the driver and then praying, God, is there any way that you would have me be a small messenger of your peace in this darkness? Because I want to tell you the the usefulness and joy that comes from being a small agent of peace in your family, in your friendships, in, in your home, to be an agent of reconciliation. That is an Advent gift. That is a gospel gift. That is a kingdom of God gift to be participants Right, so unexpectedly, is this Jacob? Yes. Is this Israel? Yes. Is this Jesus? Yes. Is this us? Yes. He himself is our peace so that we in him can share and offer his peace in the world. What a gift. Let me pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that your peace which is beyond the madness of 2020. It is beyond human understanding. It doesn't stack up exactly linearly or rationally. It is beyond human understanding that your peace would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in the person of this Messiah, in the fully developed Polaroid of this servant song, that he is our Savior, our friend, our hope. He is Israel's Messiah and he is our very life. That's our peace. That's why we light the candle. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that your peace would minister to us right now. I pray in the name of Jesus for everyone who feels this year like a stranger in their own life. They feel like an exile. Would you embrace them with your welcoming love? For those who feel bruised to the point of not being able to stand up, they're falling over with their wounds. Would you heal them? Would you lift them up in Jesus' name? For those who are smoldering, they're like, I am going out. Would you tend to the flame? Would you not snuff them out? Would you give them life? Come, even in this Advent time of hope and expectation and longing, and be our peace. In Jesus' name, amen.